0: As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Dr. Messner, please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Christian. I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. We are doing this program in partnership with the Stupid Cancer and Cancer Care. and you'll be hearing from representative from stupid cancer um, it, during the program itself is a wonderful resource for you as well today's program is young adult survivorship fertility sexuality and intimacy um, it is um, part two of young adult cancer survivorship tips to cope and today's program is supported by SEGAN. and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today now, just before I actually introduce our first speaker, I just want to say a few words about the program itself. We have over 300 participants on the program, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Bahrain, Canada, India, Israel, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Um, We're delighted to have all of you on board with us today. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Jennifer Barsky-Reese, and Dr. Reese is Associate Professor, Cancer Prevention and Control Program, Box Chase Cancer Center, Fellow, Society of Behavioral Medicine. And Dr. Reese will be addressing unique needs of young adult cancer survivors, identity, relationships, and intimacy dating couples partners dealing with survivorship it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague dr reese
0: hello
2: hi everybody thank you so much uh, for first of all for inviting me to be a part of this um this really esteemed uh uh, uh collection of of speakers on this call and i'm really honored and privileged to be able to Um, be talking to you all today. Thank you for being here on the call. Um, I want to start out by just going through a current working definition of sexual health by the World Health Organization or the WHO. I think it's a good place to start. Um, We all know that sexuality and sexual health can be um, complex and consist of a lot of things. And the definition is that it is it consists of a state of physical, emotional, mental and social well-being in relation to sexuality and it is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction or infirmity. And I think it's important to start from that background when we think about sexuality, sexual health and sexual function in in the context of surviving cancer as an adolescent or young adult as we know becoming an adult and developing into an adult with, um, with with sexual health and sexual well-being involves really a complex interplay of different factors and different processes. It involves psychosexual development. It involves physiology, so the parts of the body working as they should, um, as, they, as they need to for sex. It involves romantic partnering. It involves... Um, body image, it involves desire for sex, and, and other factors as well. So what does sexual function and the impact of cancer look like for the AYA or the adolescent and young adult survivor population? And there have been a number of research studies on this topic in recent years And there have even been so many studies that now there have been kind of what we might call systematic reviews or really kind of large reviews that assemble all the data into one place and we can turn to those and take a look at those. And there was one that was published in 2021 um, in the journal um, CA, a cancer journal for clinicians um, by Brooke Shervin and Sharon Bober, who's a speaker, on this call is also an author on that review. It's a good one to take a look at if you're interested. And what we see are that, um, you know, first of all, uh, across many different studies, it is clear that there really can be commonly an impact of many different kinds of cancer diagnoses and treatments on sexual function for young adult survivors. So generally the range of, um, rates that we see for these concerns is around 42 to 52 percent, meaning that these are these concerns and these kinds of sexual problems or different kinds of sexual problems are really common. Um, we can see that around 40 to 59 percent of survivors report that cancer has had a negative impact on their sexual function, um, and you know the rates that are are seen across various different studies report uh, similar findings as well. We also see from from studies that measure sexual function over time that, um, for instance, one study um, found 59% of survivors ages 15 to 39 reported a negative impact of cancer on their sexual function one year after diagnosis. And then this went down to 43% at two years. So I think good news in the sense that um, for, for a number of survivors, their sexual function is improving, but I think you can see also that for many of those survivors, these issues do persist over time. And up to 67% of survivors um, that are young adults report sexual health needs. This can, of course, differ by various different factors. Um, there's some data that suggests that female survivors tend to report um, uh, even uh, more considerable sexual problems or impact on their sexual function. There's some thinking that this could be because of um, greater impact of emotional or psychological issues that, affect, that tend to affect women more significantly like depression. Also body image issues can play a role as well. The types of sexual problems that are experienced by young adult survivors can really be very similar to the kinds of sexual problems that are experienced by cancer survivors across different age ranges. We know that there can be direct and indirect effects of the cancer experience and the treatment. So of course, the kinds of sexual problems are gonna be very tied to the kinds of treatments that are received. Um, we know that decreased sexual interest and activity can be issues, um, problems with sexual arousal, So that could be for for female survivors' lubrication of the vagina and for male survivors' um, erectile function. Of course, body image issues, which are going to be discussed later. There can be pain during sex, um, orgasmic difficulties, difficulties relaxing and enjoying sex are very common. And then, of course, uh, decreased sexual satisfaction are, are big as well. And so I think when thinking about how this might affect each individual person, it's important to be thinking about what was the treatment that was received or the surgery, and how did that affect the body? Is there nerve damage, for instance, that happened through radiation or through surgery um, that can affect blood flow to the sex organs? Are there hormonal medications or hormonal treatments that are at work? All of those issues can, can affect sexual function. Um, Also, whether fertility and reproductive capacity has been impacted is an important question. So what's unique, though, about uh, how, how cancer treatment can affect sexual function for AYA survivors in particular, because we know, again, as I mentioned, that sexual problems are common across the age spectrum for survivors, is really being at that certain point in your life that you are putting things together in terms of the life, right? So in terms of relationships, establishing a healthy history of sexual activity, ha- reaching sexual milestones, um, there's some data that shows that um, AYA cancer survivors have um, tend to have uh, later first intercourse and, um, uh, and that that can be delayed. Um, also the idea of having sexual problems like erectile dysfunction or menopausal types of symptoms at a young age. And these issues can be, you know, kind of perceived as older people's problems, right? It's not something that one's peers uh, are experiencing. And that can really make it especially challenging to have these kinds of issues. It's not something that that you can necessarily talk about with your friends and they'll be going through something similar um, and talk about it with them. And, of course, the idea of starting a family, having fertility concerns, um, you know, a lot of young survivors are are at an early stage in their lives. They may not have selected a partner yet. If they do want to partner with someone, um, they may not have that um, in place. And then, you know, as far as... um, relationships go. We do know, first of all, that it's important for survivors to get help with coping with physical side effects of the treatments on sexual function. That can be really important um, in starting out a relationship. There's some good news for AYA survivors in terms of relationships. So one thing we do see, young adult survivors who are in relationships tend to be doing very well the vast majority of survivors in, in, in romantic relationships are are satisfied with these relationships. And we know that, you know, having higher levels of support, feeling supported in that relationship is associated with better relationship satisfaction. Um, and uh, we also do see some challenges in the context of relationships for AYA survivors. Certainly we see ch- uh, Potential for needing help with communication how how do I communicate with my partner about the fact that i 'm having sexual problems that um, i didn 't have before? This is impacting our relatively new possibly sexual relationship um, of course that 's going to depend on how how um, long lasting that relationship has been and how and um, whether it 's new whether it 's been around for a while so um, there's some data that shows that AYA survivors may have uh, fewer romantic relationships and experience greater distress when the relationship ends. And there's also some data that suggests that higher anxiety and more severe treatment intensity can increase the risk for relationship difficulties. And so that may mean that it's important to address these issues like anxiety and these kinds of things um, as a part of that relationship. Um, of course, negotiating changes in sexual interests can be a problem. If, if, there is, if there are changes in interest in sex or desire, that can be a big issue. And then one of the last things I'll mention is just dating. Um, we know that survivors um, can have an isol- can feel isolated, separated from peers, and it can be really difficult to know when to disclose and how to disclose the cancer history when starting new relationships. So I think I will stop there and I will be happy to answer questions at a later point in the call about any of these issues.
1: Oh, Thank you so much Dr. Reese that was an excellent presentation. stellar, and actually you really set the stage now for today's program so we thank you for that as well and I'm sure there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. Thank you, thanks so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sharon Bober. And Dr. Bober is Institute Psychologist, Founding Director, Sexual Health Program, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Bober will be addressing communicating about sex, sexuality, and intimacy, body image, feeling improved sexual self-esteem, sex drive, ability, and desire, how to get my groove back, tips to deal with vaginal dryness, premature menopause. Erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation. It's my pleasure now to turn this panel over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bober.
3: Uh, thanks, Dr. Mesner. I appreciate the the long list uh, that we're going to try to quickly touch on in just a few minutes. But I also wanted to say it's always a pleasure to be with you um, as uh, part of this uh, cancer care call because I know um, you reach so many people. So um, let's just dive right in. I want to you know really start by just commenting um, quickly um, on a on a point that Dr. Reese just made, which is that when we talk about sex and sexuality and intimacy in this culture, um, we don't really often have a lot of communication about real sex and real people. You know, most of the experience that um, many of us have is that sex and sexuality is something that we don't talk a lot about, even often with our partners. Um, And certainly it's not something that we often talk a lot about um, with our providers, with our clinicians. Um, And our images and understandings around sex and sexuality are often very much impacted and associated with what we see what we learn in our culture, what we see on TV and in movies, and it's often in many ways not um, always a sort of realistic um, in terms of what to expect, especially on the other side of cancer treatment. So, you know, the reality for the majority of, of young adults uh, who go through uh, cancer, that people really come out the other side often feeling a variety of, of um change and, and concern around things like body image, feeling safe and in and, and whole in their bodies, often feeling that Um, The experience of self-esteem is not what it used to be. Sometimes those changes are obvious uh, in terms of how people look, in terms of um, body alterations or loss of hair or scars and that kind of thing. Sometimes the changes are not obvious. It really has to do with, uh, you know, everything from change in sensation, change in, um, you know, arousal or desire, changes in function that are not always obvious to a potential partner but really leave us feeling um, again, often sort of damaged in some way. And it's not often uh, the case that we talk a lot about these things, especially when we are um, going through and finishing treatment. And the focus is very much on, on what it is to have saved your life. Um, and that is, of course, the goal. But we also know that in terms of quality of life, uh, the kind of images around or the kind of impact around things like change in sexual function, sexuality, body image um, is really uh, Profound. So, when we think about um, what that means, whether it's starting a relationship, dating, figuring out how to um, build a new relationship, or whether that's about um, talking with your partner about things that are distressing or different than they used to be, um, first and foremost, it's really important to understand um, individually what. What are the actual issues that are in play? And I say this because sometimes um, we are not always aware of all of the different um, sort of ingredients in the recipe. So um, I know, for example, we've talked about or touched on this issue, uh, for example, of low desire. This is a very, probably one of the most common side effects around um, changes in sexuality for survivors that people don't feel that they have the same experience around. sort of libido or or, or desire. Um, And we also know that, again, that is very much at the intersection, right, of both physical, emotional, and relationship factors. Um, It's a great example because often people will say, for example, I just, I don't have any desire. And when we start to sort of pull back the, the uh, the layer of that onion, we realized that actually people may feel frustrated that they've tried to have sexual activity and it was unsuccessful in some way. Women may have pain or dryness. Um, people may notice that erectile function is not the same. People then feel a sense of shame or embarrassment, aren't sure how to talk about that. Um, We also know that when people go through significant hormonal changes, um, so if that might mean going through temporary or long-term menopause or ovarian function suppression, that's going to have an impact on those sort of hormonal fluctuations that often are a part of desire. Um, If people have a loss of testosterone, um, we know that that's going to have a big impact. So I would say that the first piece for for anyone who's going through this experience is really to be able to do a somewhat of a an assessment or inventory to figure out what are the things that are different, what is distressing, and then we can start to kind of create a roadmap um, for moving towards sexual recovery. So um, speaking very specifically, um, I want to sort of go back to body image for one minute and just to say that we hear a lot about body image, and I and I think that The focus is often very much on how people look. We live in a culture where often we are thinking so much about Sort of the visual images, you know, you look at it in a bathing suit, or how you, you, know, how you look at it on a on a on a Instagram photo. Um, but often for survivors, body image is as much about feeling um, comfortable and whole in their body, feeling as though they can be safe in their body and they can share their body without feeling anxious, as it is about any specific body alteration. Um, I would say that first and foremost, we have to. Kind of reimagine our, our, our whole bodily experience and understanding that Being sexy, being sexually active, being able to give and receive pleasure is not specifically connected to any one body part, but it's really about a whole person perspective. So that's also about having compassion for our body, figuring out how to feel strong, to how to feel healthy, you know, in spite of some of the changes that we may or may not be able to um, completely change. Um, We also know that in general... um, this calls for a new chapter. And this is to say that especially for young adults where we go through changes that are uh, leave us in a place that may be quite different than our peers, um, it's really important to start to figure out how you can start sort of a new chapter moving forward. It may not be possible to be able to recapture exactly how it used to be before. Um, when we also think about the sort of the physical changes, I want to talk briefly about both uh, men and women for young women. Um, the most common issues that we see are typically related to change in hormones. Um, as I said, premature menopause, early menopause. Menopause, when you were not expecting it, can often be much more um, dramatic and significant when you have that loss of estrogen because of either surgery or chemotherapy or radiation. And we know that women really need to have good information about how to deal with these changes. Uh, I think a lot about this idea of vaginal health, meaning that that women need to understand what to do to keep that uh, genital tissue healthy on the other side of loss of estrogen, That means literally understanding what you need to do to replace moisture to that tissue, to make sure your pelvic floor is healthy and well, to make sure that you um, have good blood flow to that genital tissue, and functionally to make sure that you um, are not going to have pain or discomfort with any sexual activity. Um, We know that anyone who's having um, pain or discomfort will absolutely also um, be dealing with a loss of desire because nobody's going to be motivated to move forward if that's the case. Um, In terms of erectile function, I just want to say that we have a number of very effective treatments. Um, Often most people are well aware of um, kind of oral medications like uh, uh, Viagra or Cialis, but we also know that we have a number of other sexual aids for men who are dealing with, um, you know, loss or capacity to get a good erection. Um, We also know that, again, for men, for guys after cancer, it is often not just about the mechanics, And I just want to say that when we think about Erectile function and sexual function for men. The issues around again feeling ashamed, feeling worried about performance, feeling a sense of decreased masculinity are also really important to address. And if anyone is feeling a sense of worry or bother about those things, it may be really helpful to get a amount to get a short amount of counseling or 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 um, uh, you know conversation with somebody that can help you sort of think about those issues um, because often. Yes, there's a mechanical piece, but often it's not only mechanical. Um, In general, I would say that both for men and for women, um, the most important thing that we know is that um, people often don't get the amount of information they need to deal with the problems they have. So what that often results in is uh, young adults feeling that they are Uh, kind of not where they want to be in certain ways, whether it's in relationship building or in sexuality with with a partner, Um, and people often feel like they're not sure where to go for help. So I just want to say that um, the good news is that we have an enormous uh, growth in resources that people could reach online from a number of different organizations, um, uh, certainly as well as Cancer care, but certainly from uh, large societies like the American Cancer Society, etc, um, that can really give people very clear resources and very clear um, kind of strategies for what to do with some of the changes that are so common. Um, so I am more than happy to take some questions, um, but I know that is my time for now, and I will um, turn this over to Dr. Benedict.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Bober. That was, again, a wonderful presentation, just stellar and outstanding. And um, I, I know there will be a lot of questions for you there for the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. And our, our next speaker is Dr. Catherine Benedict, and Dr. Benedict is a Clinical Associate Professor, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, Stanford University School of Medicine, member of Stanford Cancer Institute, Women's Sexual Health and Cancer Clinic Center for Integrative Medicine. And Dr. Benedict will be addressing emotional and psychological aspects of fertility and cancer, fertility preservation options, family building after cancer, planning for future potential barriers, and long-term follow-up for young adult cancer survivors. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benedict.
4: Thank you so much. Um, Thank you for inviting me to come speak to everyone. Um, I'm really happy to be here. And I'm just going to jump right in because I have a lot to cover. (laughs) Um, So we're going to pivot a little bit. This fertility and family building after cancer is, you know, somewhat related to sexual health, but also its own separate entity. Um, And, of course, we know that some types of cancer treatments can affect a person's fertility. Uh, Some chemotherapy drugs, not all, but some. And radiation to the pelvic area can cause a loss of sperm or eggs. Radiation to the pelvis can also cause scarring of the uterus, making it difficult to become pregnant and safely carry the pregnancy at a term. Uh, Radiation to certain parts of the brain can affect the production of hormones needed for eggs to mature and for sperm production. Um, And, of course, surgery affecting any type of reproductive organ will have some sort of impact on your fertility and reproductive potential. And for women, possibly make it difficult to carry a pregnancy. So very, very importantly, not all people are at risk for infertility after cancer treatment. Many people may have no difficulty having a child that's biologically related to them and for women or for those with a uterus, getting pregnant and carrying that pregnancy safely. You should be counseled about these risks, any kind of risks to your reproductive health um, before your cancer treatment begins and offered fertility preservation options if you're interested. For men or for people with testicles and sperm, this would involve extracting and freezing your sperm. For women or for people with ovaries and eggs, for the most part, this involves egg or embryo freezing. Um, There may also be other options to protect your fertility during treatment, such as taking medications to suppress hormones or modifying the radiation protocol to protect your reproductive organs. Um, And if you're interested in fertility preservation, you should be referred to a reproductive endocrinologist. This is a fertility specialist that will guide you through your options and the procedures. Many times this doctor will need to coordinate with your cancer care team to ensure you complete it prior to treatment and to just navigate how those visits occur. For men and for sperm freezing, this is pretty straightforward and pretty easy, it's a short procedure, um, you know, pretty simple. For women, um, if you are going through egg freezing, egg freezing process, um, and whether that will then become embryo freezing, the process can take about two to three weeks, so it takes some coordination.
0: Um,
4: this is an important conversation to have with your oncologist and he or she should be the one to bring up the topic. Um, Unfortunately, not all clinicians do, and many people are surprised if they find out after treatment that they're unable to have a child, um, or at least one that's genetically related, or that it might be difficult for them to do so. And there can be a lot of emotions that come up, sadness, grief, anger, or fear, and it's really normal to feel all of those things. You're not alone if you are. Um, And I'll talk about some ways to, to handle emotions at the end. And then, you know, having said that, so, so lack of information, lack of, of, you know, the doctor bringing this up is one reason that many people miss out on, the, you know, being able to undergo fertility preservation. But there's a number of other barriers as well. It may be overwhelming to think about this at a time of such emotional upheaval, just having a cancer diagnosis, planning for upcoming treatments. Um, people might not have access to clinics based on where you live in the U.S., Cost is a major barrier. Insurance often doesn't cover these procedures, and I'm sure this is true for other countries as well, or, or just the fact that cost may be an issue for other countries, in other countries. Um, and cost is really especially high for women or anyone who's preserving eggs or embryos, because the medications needed are very expensive and the procedure is just much more invasive. It is still the case. Um, again, at least in the U.S., but I think this is true worldwide, that most women are unable to undergo any uh, you know, egg or embryo freezing prior to treatment and most fertility preservation um, options, which means that this is an extremely important topic to focus on in the post-treatment phase. What does fertility and your reproductive health look like? What are your family-building options at this point? And this is really the crux of my work um, because I see huge gaps in clinical care in which fertility is not being talked about after treatment ends, and patients and survivors are left to wonder, what now? What do I do?" So so let's think about family building after cancer. If you think that you might want to have a child in the future that's genetically related, genetically related to you, especially if you were unable to undergo any sort of a fertility preservation um, procedure prior to your treatment, it's a good idea to have your fertility evaluated after your treatments completed. Your oncologist will guide you on the correct timing of when this evaluation should occur. Sometimes your body needs a little bit of time, well, most times, your body needs a little bit of time to recover from your treatment in order to get an accurate estimate of your reproductive health and your reproductive potential. Ideally, your oncologist has discussed fertility with you all along, and that they've made themselves available to you to ask questions, to be a resource, and to you know, guide you in the referrals that are needed. Again, this is not always the case, um, and, if, and if that's true, these are my recommendations. For men and those with sperm, you would want to see a urologist. This is the person that would do that evaluation for you. For women and those with ovaries, I think seeing your gynecologist is probably the best place to start. Of course, you can bring this up with your oncologist as well, and they may, may be able to do some tests. But really, your gynecologist is the one who's the specialist in this area. If you don't have a gynecologist, sometimes primary care doctors, are able to do some of the same tests. You may eventually be recommended to see a fertility specialist who would do a more comprehensive evaluation. The problem is, at least in the US, insurance, again, often doesn't cover these visits and it can be quite costly. So the first step, I think, seeing one of these other specialists, a urologist, gynecologist, or at least a PCP is is a good way to start. For women especially, undergoing a fertility evaluation is especially important if there was damage to your ovaries that caused a reduction in the number of eggs you may have. This might mean that you are currently fertile, but due to your cancer treatment, you may be at risk for early menopause in which you would no longer be able to become pregnant using your own eggs. If this is the case, you might want to consider having children sooner than you would have originally planned, or you might consider undergoing fertility preservation at this point now in the post treatment phase to freeze eggs or embryos and use those in the future. So, fertility evaluation will give you a sense of your reproductive timeline for women, at least. Um, Then, you know, either your sperm production comes back or it doesn't. There's less of a timeline issue. Um, But again, for women, if you might be at risk for early menopause, it would be important to know. Um, But ultimately, there are many ways to have a child and build your family. You may be able to conceive naturally, again, this, or what I call unassisted reproduction and it may be all fine and, and there's nothing to worry about. Or you may need to pursue reproductive medicine. And so I've touched on this, fertility preservation is under the umbrella of reproductive medicine. Um, if you are able to freeze sperm, eggs, or embryos prior to treatment, those of course are available to you when you're ready, there's no limit on how long they can be frozen for. If you are unable to, um, you might want to consider, or, and you are unable to you know, in the post-treatment phase as well or um, there's some damage to sperm production or, or your eggs, um, you could consider donor sperm, donor eggs, or donor embryos. This is a good option for women and those with a uterus who, will, who still want to experience pregnancy even if they're unable to use their own eggs.
3: Um,
4: some women can't carry a pregnancy after their treatment This can happen if your uterus was removed, of course. If you had high-dose radiation to your pelvis, you might be on long-term maintenance therapies in which a pregnancy is contraindicated, um, or if there are any medical issues that make it unsafe. If this is the case, you can have another woman carry a pregnancy for you. This is called surrogacy. In this case, the surrogate would become pregnant with you and your partner's embryo, or an embryo that you create from any combination of sperm and eggs, either from you or your partner or donor, um, and she would carry the pregnancy. She would not be related to that, genetically related to that child. She just carries the pregnancy for you. In the U.S., surrogacy laws are different depending on the state you live in, and you'll need to work with an agency or an attorney that specializes in assisted reproductive um, law.
3: Um,
4: And you can, you know, of course, use any combination of donor sperm, donor eggs with your, you know, the surrogacy option. And finally, of course, there's adoption or fostering a child as to build your family. In the U.S., laws regulating surrogacy and adoption, again, vary by state, so it's important to understand the laws where you live. If you identify as LGBTQ+, there may also be special considerations you need to think of and plan for. Of course, the legal aspects is something to be aware of but you also have other medical decisions to think about. Um, For example, if you're in a couple and both partners have functioning ovaries and a uterus, you will need to decide who will use their eggs and who will carry a pregnancy, where the sperm will come from. There are great resources to guide you through all the steps and all the decisions to think about that I can provide. I think I'll be able to provide resources. Um, We talked about emailing them out. Um, So, there are many things to consider when deciding which family building option is right for you. Part of making a good decision is thinking about what you need to feel informed, clear about your values, priorities, and goals, and to feel supported. Religious and cultural beliefs might be important here, and of course, if you have a partner considering their values, priorities, and goals, and how do you align and how do you compromise if there are differences. The road to parenthood can be long and difficult, especially after cancer. There are a lot of emotions that might come up, especially if you're unsuccessful in the first attempt or experience any kind of setback. It can be incredibly helpful to lean on the people in your life that you love and trust as you go through this process. But it's also really common to feel like no one gets it. No one in your social network understands what you've been through and what you're looking forward to in the future. Um, And it can be helpful to find others who are in the same experience, who are in the same situation, or at least have been. Um, So there are a lot of, or at least several that I know of, young adult cancer groups and organizations that have forums and resources for survivors and couples going through this. Stupid cancer is a great example of one. It can be helpful to connect with others who get it. It's nice to hear success stories and to learn from others' experiences. At the same time, if you're participating in groups or online forums, just be somewhat careful and be in touch with how you're feeling because it can also easily be overwhelming or you might get sucked into others' negative emotions or negative experiences that they've had. So just, you know, double-edged sword a little bit. If you're finding you're experiencing a lot of anxiety and distress, please find a counselor or a therapist to help you through this. I know there are access issues here and it can be hard to find one. Your cancer care team might be able to assist or social worker, um, but it can be an incredibly emotional and difficult road and you wanna make sure you have the support. If you're going through this experience with a partner, Sharing emotions, making joint decisions, and navigating the process can be exciting. And of course, it can also be challenging. Make sure you're communicating about your feelings and the plan that's right for both of you and what you will do if that plan doesn't work out. What's sort of the backup plan then? And that brings me to my key takeaway, which is that it can be really helpful to plan ahead. Even if you don't want to have children for many years, it might be smart to think about your options now and what that would entail so that you can plan and be prepared when the time comes. Cost is a, is a big issue that comes up when thinking about that. The cost can be quite high, um, and it might be something you can start saving for now. I think it's also helpful to prepare emotionally, to be prepared of your options and have sort of realistic expectations of what to expect. Clinically, I work with so many people who finish their cancer treatment. They go off and live their lives as they should, and then they come back when they're ready to have a child immediately and just are shocked and upset when they realize the process might not be so easy. So be informed and be prepared as best as you can. Of course, there still may be big emotions as you're going through this journey, especially if there are setbacks, and that's why it's so important to build your support team. Finally, there are a number of resources um, that I think can be helpful. Again, I mentioned Stupid Cancer. I know they have a fertility and family building um, section on their website. FertilityIQ.com is also a great website with information and videos on all things fertility, IVF, and reproductive medicine, including all types of um, different groups, like information for LGBTQ um, groups. Um, So I think the plan is also to send out resources again, and and I'll get those out to you. And I think that's all. I apologize if I went a little over.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benedict. Um, just a wonderful presentation, um, stellar. Um, and I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A. And just to comment, what we will do is we'll collect all of the resources and we'll send them out to all of you. We do send a survey monkey evaluation of the program a couple of days after the program. Oh, it won't be, it wouldn't be this week, it'll be next week. And um, so we'll include all the resources that Dr. Bennett mentioned, uh, Dr. Barber mentioned, um, Dr. Reese mentioned we'll put all those resources together and send them to you so you'll have them all in one in one place to act to, to take advantage of okay thank you so much again um, and I know there'll be questions for you dr. Benedict during the Q&A and our next speaker is mr. Matthew Marokin and he is the program and community coordinator for stupid cancer and he'll be addressing stupid cancer's free programs and services give you their phone number, email, and website. And it is my great pleasure to so have this program my esteemed colleague, Mr. Moroccan.
5: Hello, my name is Matthew Monos-King, and yeah, as just said before, Program Community Coordinator here at Stupid Cancer. So since I only have a little bit of time, I'm gonna quick run through our programming, especially the ones that deal with what we're talking about today. So sex and intimacy is one of the biggest topics that we talk about here in Stupid Cancer, among many others. You can see it all at stupidcancer.org. We have a few different events either coming up or, you know, in the pipeline. So a couple in the pipeline that might be interested that I know we'll have more time to discuss exactly this topic is both Digital CancerCon, which is coming up here in April, April 18th to the 20th, and you'll be able to sign up for that. Pretty soon here, probably around the 1st of March, it'll go live. And then CancerCon Live, which will be held in Austin, Texas in August. We have multiple presentations, events, and, you know, speakers, like the various speakers on here today, um, that will talk about a plethora of different topics. Another one that might be interesting, that's actually happening, here tomorrow or oh, no not tomorrow uh this next tuesday during like around lunchtime on the east coast time is discussion series so our dis- we have discussion sessions our february one has to do with dating and relationships but these vary month to month on what the discussion sessions are about they might be on sex intimacy they might be about connection and isolation they might be about being a caregiver for a cancer uh, patient They vary, but they go deep. We have a licensed social worker on the call, and so you get a presentation and can really dive deep into talking about these topics. We also have meetups. So we have both digital meetups, since we have people from all over. Every Monday, we have a meetup of just, you know, anybody can get in. That's our weekly meetup. It's at 9 p.m. Eastern time, about, what, 5 p.m. Pacific time. But then we also have a bunch of special uh, digital meetups as well, such as, like, Couple of nights ago we had a game night, we have like arts and crafts, painting, etc. And then you should also follow all our socials at Stupid Cancer because we have plenty of in-person meetups as well, and those vary depending where we're at. Uh, other than that, you can find everything, including more resources on this very topic, on our resource page. Again, stupidcancer.org. We have a whole section with webinars and everything about sex and intimacy, and also a resource guide that goes deeper into it and provides plenty of other organizations beyond just us that have to deal with AYA sex and intimacy, among other resources. So that's my time.
1: <laughs> uh, thank you so much, um, Mr. Mark. That was a wonderful presentation and just uh, it's just a wonderful resource for everybody on the call. So. Um, we will include um, all the information about stupid cancer, and please do take advantage of all of their wonderful resources, which are free. So it's, it's wonderful. It's just a wonderful resource, and it's been around for a very long time, um, so it's, it really um, is terrific. Okay, and our next speaker is Ms. Haley Fuchs, and Ms. Fuchs is an oncology social worker with Cancer Care, and she'll be talking about cancer care free programs and services and give you information about our helpline and our website as well. Uh, It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fuchs.
6: Thank you, Dr. Messner. My name is Haley Fuchs. I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and I'd like to take this opportunity to address some of the psychosocial impacts that a cancer diagnosis can have on the young adult population and highlight some of Cancer Care's programs that can be of assistance. Before I get started, I just wanted to provide a brief review of Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to people managing the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. I'm going to provide a brief uh, review of our services. Uh, So a cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming, and additional support and guidance may help to relieve feelings of anxiety. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker uh, through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. Cancer Care offers free, cancer-focused counseling to individuals impacted by cancer for those who live in New York and New Jersey. And joining a support group can also be a great way of getting additional support through this time. Being a member um, in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as as obtained information. Cancer Care offers online support groups for young adults across the country. And these groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology, oncology social workers. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and you can register on our website. We are currently offering a few groups Uh, specifically for the AYA population uh, for young adults diagnosed with cancer as well as YA caregivers. We have also launched an LGBTQ plus young adults with cancer group. Uh, young adults diagnosed with cancer may experience uh, practical and financial concerns throughout their treatment as well, and it might be helpful to discuss any financial concerns with your medical providers, social worker, or patient navigator, as well as the financial department at the treatment center um, to see if there are any financial options available to you. Cancer Care offers some limited financial assistance to YAs who, uh, with certain diagnoses who qualify. Uh, Cancer Care provides free telephone resource navigation to young adults with cancer, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers. These services are provided by professional resource navigators and oncology social workers and are available in English and Spanish. Uh, Resource navigation centers um, on the practical challenges that arise from cancer, and staff provide clients with resources, referrals, and potential financial assistance options. And Cancer Care uh, is now offering an online tool called My Trialist that provides information on clinical trials, answers commonly asked questions, and helps patients find uh, potential clinical trials that may uh, meet their needs. And finally, on Cancer Care's website, there's a wide array of reading material and information related to young adults coping with cancer. This includes uh, recorded Connect Education workshops. Cancer Care Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast, and multiple publications, as well as stories of help and hope in both general and specific resources. We also have uh, coping, uh, coping Circle workshops. Specifically, we have um, upcoming AYA Cancer care, uh, Cancer Chronicles. If you're interested in learning uh, more about our support services, I encourage you to explore the website and, of course, call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800 813 Four six seven three to speak to one of our oncology social workers. Thank you for your attention and the an opportunity to speak. Uh, I will now turn the program back to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Missy. Uh, that was a wonderful presentation. And now um, we're going to move on to the Q and A. And I'm going to ask um, uh, Krista to explain to you how to q- queue up for questions. Um, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Um, thank you, Krista.
0: Oh, thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question.
1: And so we have a question from one of our, a lot of questions. We may not be able to take all of them, but I'm going to take some of your questions. Um, so um, so what do you know, so so question, and I'll direct this question uh, to Dr. Bover. Um What do you know about organizations like Progeny that help with the cost of fertility treatment? Um, Dr. Messer, I'm happy to, to, to speak to
3: that, but my guess is that Dr. Bene, Dr. Benedict is probably more aware, so um, okay. speaking about the fertility issues. Okay. Dr. Benedict, do you want to address this?
4: Yeah, my understanding is Progeny is would be through your employer, and so there's some contract between your employer and Progeny to see how many, um, be, you know how many benefits you cover. Usually, Progeny has a pretty flexible system, and you get um, what they call uh, cycles. But you can divide up that cycle in different ways. So it might cover—I didn't cover this, but IUIs is one type of treatment, um, and that. Is one section of a cycle, so you can kind of divvy it up. Um, they're pretty flexible, but it would depend on what you have um, based on your insurance plan. But they're 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 great to work with. It's a, it's it's easy to use once you're on board.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, so this question is for Dr. Bober. I'll start with you anyway. <laughs> um, can discuss more about young adults with cancer and relationships i'm concerned about how different people view view me after i tell them about my diagnosis but i know yeah. it will be difficult yeah
3: yeah no that's a really common question and i i will just say this briefly um if you are starting to Date someone, meet somebody, and share that you know in some share your cancer experience in some way, and you find that the the little bit that you share gets you kind of feedback from this other person that they would be either you know. Worried or freaked out, or or not able to sort of want to listen or hear more. Um, I would just say that's the shorthand for knowing that you would not want to date that person, right? So you know, I totally appreciate that. You know, disclosing your experience is probably one of the ma- You know, is probably one of the most common concerns that all young adults have when they've had cancer. But what I just want to say is that this is not a deal breaker. You know, everybody brings stuff to the table, and um, having had a cancer experience. Um, is not a reason why you can or can't have a a really... Authentic and and good relationship, and and the reality is that if there is the kind if you're if you're talking about um, sharing a little bit of this information with someone, um, and that person is just not the kind of person that feels like they would want to be with someone who's a cancer survivor, I always remind people that um, they're better hearing about that on the front end because that is really probably not the kind of person that you would want to be with in the long term. (laughs)
1: Excellent point. Okay. Thank you. Excellent response to that question. And um a question for Doctor Benedict. Um, when should you let your, your physician know about pain during sex? For Doctor Doctor Reese, I'm sorry, Doctor Reese.
3: Okay. Um I would say that uh you should let
2: your uh, doctor know about pain that you're experiencing during sex as soon as possible. Um, I think that um, it's really important to intervene as early as possible and uh, to address the physical kinds of, of problems that can result from different treatments uh, for various reasons. One, um, you know, I think we know for a fact uh, that most of the time, or at least many times, um, these uh, issues do not necessarily resolve on their own. And so if you wait, you know, there's, there's really no guarantee it's going to get better. And, and what's more likely is that um, things could potentially either stay the same or get worse and have a continued impact on the relationship, on the, the intimate relationship, on the sex, on your sex life. Um, and so, you know, and, and, you know, of course, developing healthy patterns and healthy habits in in one's intimate relationship is really important. And so I think it is important to intervene as, as soon as possible.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and um, um, a question for Dr. Boger, um, or actually perhaps Dr. Benedict. Um, are there any funding resources, coverage for preserving sperm eggs or is this a strictly out-of-pocket cost? Either Dr. Bover or do- any of our speakers want to address this. Hello?
0: I'm not sure if Dr. Yes. Dr. Benedict are you on the call? Yes, I've been trying to speak. Oh. Go right ahead. <laughs> can you hear me?
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah,
4: now I can. Okay, great. Sorry. So, um, unfortunately, many of the grant programs are often um, for the time of diagnosis prior to treatment, so for fertility preservation. So, those are available. Um, Hopefully, your social worker might have access to them. I'm not sure if Stupid Cancer has these resources. Um, Expect Miracles Foundation has some grants, but if you Google this, there are grants out there. There are are there are also other grants for the post treatment phase when it comes time to either, you know, trying to get pregnant. Um, there are grants for adoption. So um, fertility IQ also has this information on their website. A lot of grant uh, opportunities. I think they break it up. Um, and I apologize. This is for the U.S. based audience. They break it up by states available. But there, so please look into those. Google around. Um, there are some available. Usually, they don't cover the full cost, but at least it can help, right? And every little helps. And I'll just say a quick um, note on this, if you don't mind. Um, some other common things that people do to cover costs is sometimes people register for their wedding instead of registering for gifts. They ha- they they ask people to donate to their family building fund. People will do this as birthday, uh, you know, birthdays. uh, program, you know, whatever you do to raise money. Um, And so you can sort of get creative with how, you know, how do you come up with this?
1: Excellent. Thank you. Um, And for Ms. Hughes' um, question, I do not have a lot of support around me. Who can I reach out to?
6: Yeah, I would say definitely, you know, coming to Cancer Care's website, our online support group we have um, that's offered nationally. We have young adult patients, caregivers, and uh, LGBTQ plus groups. Um, you can kind of meet a community that way through uh, Stupid Cancer as well. Um, some really great, you know, meetups like Matthew was, was mentioning. Um, and I think, you know, seeing if, if your cancer center offers any support groups because many, many cancer centers offer
0: either groups or peer matching.
1: Excellent, um, and um, and then another question um, for Matthew. Do you want to say more about this as well?
5: Yeah. So I just want to go back another question too. Uh, Super does not offer any grants or funding for everything, but we do have a section of our website that basically lists out everyone who does um, that we know that like works with us. So there's that. And at least for this one, yeah, we don't offer exactly support groups. But what cancer's like, real mission is, is, like, we want to make friends. Like, that's the, at the core, that's what we want to do. We want cancer patients and survivors not to feel so alone. So we have plenty of meetups, both digital and in person, that you can join, get into, talk to. And if you want to get more deeper into, like, talking about what you're experiencing definitely the discussion sessions is where you want to go
1: excellent thank you um, um, this is a, this been wonderful, this been a wonderful program and so now um we do have uh just takeaways i'd like our speakers to just provide takeaways for today's program so i'm going to start first with dr um, reese if you would just give a takeaway for our participants
2: uh, sure. Um, I guess one of my takeaways would be that uh, sexuality and um, intimate relationships can be a really important and rewarding part of life and, and you know, to feel comfortable and confident talking to your doctor, talking to your partner about these important issues, uh, sweep them under the rug and to know that it is okay to, to bring these issues up.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, Dr. Bober.
3: I would generally say that the most important thing for young adults is to recognize that many of the issues that people struggle with related to sexuality and intimacy um, are manageable. There is an enormous amount of help available, but often people aren't either aware of those resources or aware of how to access those resources. So I would say that certainly using um, organizations like Stupid Cancer and Cancer Care um, is really important to be able to figure out um, what are the issues and where to get the help that you need.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, and uh, Dr. Benedict? Um I think my takeaway is that having a child building a family
4: after cancer is possible the path to getting there might look different than you had thought prior to your cancer experience but it's possible and just to plan ahead because it can be it can be difficult there can be more challenges um so if you plan
0: you're better prepared Excellent Um thank you so much
5: and Mr. Marquin come to our programming. <laughs> At the end of the day, like we have a lot of programming that can do exactly, you know, the social meetup aspect and also provide the information about the sex and int- intimacy that we're all here and talking about today. So, come to the programming.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Thank you.
5: <laughs> Great
1: recommendation and the UX
6: I would say uh, communication is key and being open and honest with your partner, um, you know, about how you're feeling physically, emotionally after treatment, whether that relates to sex, sexuality, and dating, um, or all the above is so important, and reach out to friends or other post-treatment survivors to maybe practice, you know, difficult conversations.
1: Excellent. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I want to thank our participants actually for asking such great questions. Um, And I want to thank actually, all of you on the call today. Um, It was a really wonderful, wonderful program today, Um, and it's a credit to all of you, both our participants and our speakers, that we actually had such a fantastic program. However, I do want to acknowledge that we weren't able to take everyone's question, so I do want to comment about that. For those of you who have a question that you were able to ask, for those of you who have a question in queue or one that you'd like to ask, please take all your questions back to Treating healthcare Care Team. Remember, your healthcare care team, they do know you're the best. They know um, about you um, in terms of they have all your records. They all your records in front of them. And they are um, people that you can ask for information, um, and that's really important. You also should take advantage of both stupid cancer and cancer care, and we're also going to send all of you a list um, a significant list of resources that you can reach out to as well. So most importantly, as we conclude the program today, we would not want any one of you to feel alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support, and we are here to help you, and there's a lot of help out there for you. So please keep that in mind, and I, with that in mind, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.